Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> My name's Ian. There won't be a PowerPoint today, so you can either look at me or look at the floor and look out the window, or, as Paul reminded you, it might be a really good idea to read this because everybody needs to read this, so for the next 17 or 18 minutes, here's your opportunity. Today marks the start of Advent, that lovely contemplative period leading up to Christmas where we all turn our minds to a baby in a manger, a donkey, angels in the sky, three wise men and Christmas carols. Unlike Easter, our other great Christmas commemoration, it's all happy, albeit in the context of reaching the end of the year exhausted and desperate for a holiday or contemplating Christmas lunch with hot, humid weather and possibly a horde of relatives we choose to avoid for the rest of the year. But we put up with all that. It is Christmas after all, and we will be of good cheer with goodwill towards everyone. But is Advent just about that? Well, in simple terms, Advent means the arrival of a notable person or thing. Okay, Advent prepares us for the coming of Jesus, but in telling Zachariah's story, Luke wants us to know just what that arrival means. Luke is the only Gospel writer to mention Zechariah, and he offers just enough information to tell us that Zechariah was not important in Jerusalem at the time. His name was common, He was an older priest. There were 24 divisions of priests and he was part of the 8th division of Abijah. There were some 18,000 priests and Levites in Jerusalem about that time and the divisions would serve in the temple for one week every six months, not often. Twice a day, the incense offering was burnt on the golden altar within the inner temple and the priest cast lots, we would say draw straws, to decide who got the job. The chances of getting selected were small, but it falls to Zechariah, and it must have been a great honour, but also one that made you nervous. You wouldn't want to mess it up. Zechariah heads into the temple, and the crowds had gathered for the ceremony as they usually did, probably not so much with a sense of expectation, but to pray a bit, Perhaps watch the spectacle much like the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. It shouldn't take too long. Zachariah's going about his business when an angel appears standing at the right side of the altar and Zachariah is startled and gripped with fear. Well, it's no surprise that Zachariah is startled, but his fear seems a little strange. Luke says he and his wife Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. What is he to be afraid about? He has no time to process that before it gets more strange. After telling him not to be afraid, the angel says, your prayer has been heard, Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to call him John. God has chosen to send an angel to Zechariah in the temple, the centre of the Israelite religion, to let him know his wife's going to have a kid. And by the way, when he's born, call him John. What sort of message is that? The angel now gives Zechariah a biography of his son. He'll be a teetotaler, filled with the Holy Spirit before he's born, devoted to God, operating in the spirit and power of Elijah, and whose principal job will be to turn the hearts of God's people and get them ready for the Lord. 
Now Zacharias not only afraid, he's confused. He hasn't even processed any of the biography material because he's still stuck on this notion that Elizabeth is going to have a baby. How can I be sure of this, he asks. I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. Now we're all confused. The angel has told him that the prayer he's been praying for a long, long time, that he would have a child, has been answered and he doesn't believe it. He cites what seems a sensible reason for disbelief. He's old and, let's face it, Elizabeth isn't exactly the picture of youth these days. But if that's the case, why is he still praying the prayer? It's an interesting take on prayer, isn't it? Believing that all things are possible for God and the same prayer keeps getting prayed. But somewhere along the line, the prayer becomes less an urgent petition with belief and more just a habit. Over time, moving from possible to not very likely to, well, that's all over then, but I'll keep going anyway. You can't blame Zachariah for asking, how can I be sure of this? But clearly, this is the wrong thing to do. The angel's response doesn't help the situation become any less weird, and it comes in two parts. First, he says who he is. He's Gabriel. He stands in God's presence and God has sent him to deliver the good news message that he'll have a son who will play a big role in the history of God's people. Gabriel? That's a name Zachariah has heard before. The only time Gabriel has appeared previously is to help Daniel understand his visions of the end times and the coming of the anointed one. Gabriel is the angel associated with the apocalypse. Now Zechariah really does have something to be afraid about. Then Gabriel tells him that failing to believe means the punishment of not being able to speak until John is born. A priest of God who was struck dumb for nine months, Becky should be so lucky. It seems strange that Zachariah should be punished for being confused and expressing surprise, wanting a little proof. On reflection, however, it seems like a pretty sensible decision by Gabriel. Zachariah is struggling to process it all and opening his mouth is likely to muddle the message that God is sending. Zachariah's question will be answered by Elizabeth's pregnancy, proving beyond doubt that God is behind it. After Zachariah has got over being afraid, confused and sceptical, he will be able to explain what went on in the temple. Meanwhile, the crowd has been waiting a long time. When Zachariah finally emerges, probably ashen-faced and hand-shaking, and they ask him why he took so long, all he can do is try hand gestures, a sort of first-century BC public game of Pictionary. It's enough to let them know that he's seen a vision and something very big is going to happen. Words would have complicated things unnecessarily. Zachariah completes his week's service and heads home and Elizabeth becomes pregnant. So why does Luke mention Zachariah, an everyday priest who's the husband of the woman who gives birth to the guy who will point God's people to the coming of the Lord? Zachariah is just the hors d'oeuvres before the entree preceding the main course. It is because Luke wants his readers to see Zachariah himself 
is an important sign of just how important the coming Advent is. They are to know that this particular Advent, this arrival of someone notable, is very big, as are the implications. And Zechariah is this sign because his story is to remind God's people of other major Advents by God in their history. It is about giving the coming Advent some context. Five points. First, Zechariah's experience matches what happened to Isaiah, one of God's great prophets. Isaiah too was in the temple when God appeared. It was very confronting and he was afraid. But scarier than the vision that he had was his being sent to God's people with a message that they had strayed and God was going to send judgment. Perhaps Zechariah was recalling Isaiah when Gabriel first appeared. Ultimately, Isaiah brought a message of the suffering servant who would come to restore his people, but judgment would come first, the people would go into exile. Luke's inference is that when God intervenes in history dramatically in this way, it can be to judge his people as much as to save them. Expect that to be the case and be ready. Secondly, Zechariah's story is a reminder of Abraham. God promised Abraham he would make him into a great nation. Abraham accepted that and went on his way, but later asked how that would happen given he had no children and he and Sarah were quite elderly. Sound familiar? Genesis 15.6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Sarah fell pregnant, the Jewish nation was begun, God fulfilled his covenant promise with the birth of Isaac. Again, God's people should get themselves ready and be expectant because Luke is hinting that this Advent has something of the magnitude of God's covenant with Abraham. Thirdly, Zechariah's son will be filled with the Holy Spirit and will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. John will match Elijah, one of Israel's greatest prophets, the one who challenged Israel's rulers, called out the false prophets and did miraculous deeds. As with the allusion to Isaiah, the message is one of God's power being exercised in the context of judgment, of God's people being called to account. It's quite troubling. Fourthly, Zechariah's encounter is not just with any angel, but Gabriel. Gabriel appears to Daniel on two occasions. After Daniel's apocalyptic vision of the goat and the ram, which ends with the daily sacrifice to the Lord being lost, the sanctuary destroyed and God's people in rebellion, Gabriel's job is to explain to Daniel that his vision is about the end times. But if there is any comfort, a time of redemption will come. In Daniel 9, Daniel petitions God to spare his people the disaster threatened in the vision. He spells out the sinfulness of God's people over a long time. Their rebellion, their turning away from God's laws and decrees, the failure of their leaders, the ignoring of the prophets and their unwillingness to turn back to God. And yet he makes the case that God is merciful and forgiving. He is the one who brought God's people out of slavery in Egypt and took them to the promised land even though they didn't deserve it. He pleads for God to be merciful again and not bring judgment. 
Gabriel appears again to Daniel to provide additional explanation about these end times. His message is difficult to understand, but suffice to say, God's judgment will stand. However, within that, there will be an anointed one who will come to rule, but with the surprising twist of the anointed one being put to death as God unfolds his end time plans. Finally, perhaps through Daniel's prayer of petition, Luke's readers are reminded of Moses and how the exodus from Egypt shows God's dramatic and powerful intervention to release his people from captivity. Perhaps Gabriel's message to Zechariah is that the people might expect another Moses-like figure and another exodus of sorts. So what is Luke trying to tell his readers through Zechariah's story? It is that this advent sits in the same context as key figures and events in the history of God's people. Isaiah and the message of judgment on God's people to be later followed by our Redeemer. Abraham and God's covenant with his people. John having the same spiritual power as Elijah who displayed God's wrath on the false prophets. Daniel's visions of the end times, the apocalypse interpreted by the angel Gabriel and God's emissary Moses leading his people out of Egypt. It is all encapsulated in Zechariah's experience. Zechariah is a sign that the forthcoming advent is of monumental proportions in the context of the history of God's people. Well, what are we to make of it all on the first Sunday of Advent in 2019? Well, of course we know that there is no one and nothing bigger than Jesus in the history of God's people. But is that it, the bigness of this event? What worries me is that we are conditioned to the niceness of Christmas and that our theology is skewed in the direction of salvation, that Jesus came to save the lost. But Luke's message through Zechariah's story is to alert God's people that this Advent brings a package of salvation, judgment and the end times and they should set their expectations and prepare themselves accordingly. And it is this reintroduction of judgment and the end times into our thinking about the Christmas story that is most challenging. I don't know about you, but I am firmly of the view that we are in something of an apocalyptic era that we are witnessing something of the end times. We have the breakdown of Western liberal democracies, the progressive dismantling of faith in institutions which undergird our society, crippling debt here and internationally, rampant self-absorption, blatant questioning of what is truth and the legitimisation of straight-out lying, out-of-control social media, the rise of authoritarianism and politicians, including black-and-white Pentecostal ones, who fiddle with climate policy while the country burns. Instead, they offer their marvellously ineffectual thoughts and prayers. There is a time of reckoning coming sooner than we think. Perhaps the early winds have already arrived and neither our leaders nor the world's will be able to buy their way out of it. But if we are being alerted once again to our being in the end times, does this mean that Christ's return is imminent? I don't think so. Why should he return to save us? Perhaps God's judgment is to allow humanity to remain in the escalating misery it's brought upon itself, including God's people, whose corrupted church has contributed to the current state of affairs. 
in a lovely piece in the conversation in October called Thoughts and Prayers, Miracles, Christianity and Praying for Rain, Philip Armand, Emeritus Professor in the History of Religious Thought at UQ, talked about ScoMo's thoughts and prayers, especially related to climate change. He concluded, and I quote, believe it or not, relying on prayers would be theologically irresponsible. Any theologian worth his or her salt would argue God made us responsible for the well-being of this planet. If I were God, asked to sort out climate problems caused by the actions of human beings, he writes, I would remain divinely aloof and simply say, you messed it up, you fix it. He's right. And if you're convinced this Prime Minister is going to make things better simply because he's a Christian, you have my thoughts and prayers. Jesus didn't have much time for the leaders of his day either. The history of God's people contained in the story of Zechariah is that God can wait for long periods before he bails his people out. His people were in Egypt for 400 years. They were exiled to Babylon for 70. So why do we think that God will do anything different or more quickly for us when the current trajectory we are on really blows up in our faces? If there's to be another exodus on this earth, exodus to where? We actually live in a world between two advents, Jesus' birth and Jesus' return. If Jesus' return is delayed so that our own worldly apocalypse is allowed to play out a bit, what are our thoughts and prayers going to be? What will we expect of God? How will we prepare ourselves? And how will we live through the judgment as it unfolds? Luke's inclusion of Zechariah's story puts us on notice that the advent of Jesus means a lot more than a baby in a manger, three wise men, some Christmas carols and goodwill to all humanity. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to having lost sight of the full meaning of the advent of Jesus through our repetition of traditions and rituals, both sacred and secular. At best, we've likely seen the birth of the baby Jesus purely in terms of you sending your son to save the world. Zachariah's experience in the temple reminds us that you have broken into history in miraculous ways many times. It's a reminder of how you recognise your people have gone astray and need to be rescued, but it's also a reminder that when you sent Jesus, it wasn't just to save but to judge and to usher in the end times. Lord, help us to consider seriously what all this means for the times we live in. Help us to set our expectations and make our preparations accordingly. Amen.